0: Well, good morning, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. We're delighted to welcome you today, and it is a particular uh, joy to be able to welcome a few more people into the building today, and we're praying very much that this will be just the beginning of some more relaxation of the rules for what we can do here on Sundays, so watch this space. Uh, I want to welcome everyone who's watching online, and um, hopefully there will very soon be enough room for you as well to come and join us, and hopefully you'll be able to, to worship the Lord with us in person. Well, um, we're going to go to have our Bible reading now. Um, I don't have um, really any notices I want to uh, take time to, to dwell on just now. We're going to have our Bible reading, which is actually going to be the final part of the New Testament letter of James. Uh, which Elizabeth's going to read for us and as you hear these words bear in mind that these were written to some of the very first Christians who were under pressure because of their faith it seems they'd been scattered from their homes they're being oppressed by the wealthy and powerful and as a result it was it was producing tension within the camp christians behaving in less than christian ways And so James, he writes this letter to remind them that believing in Jesus was just the start of their Christian experience. They had to live for Jesus as well. So he reminds them of the goodness of God, even in their suffering. He reminds them of the importance and how they speak. He reminds them that following Jesus can only be done wholeheartedly. He reminds them that the struggles of today won't be forever because Jesus is coming, and he has one more reminder for them, which Elizabeth's going to read for us now. Thank you.
1: Good morning. Our reading today is from James five thirteen to 19, the prayer of faith. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly it would not rain, and it did not rain, on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: So we've already had the advantage of thinking about what prayer is And I think for many of us, that single-sentence definition of prayer that we share together is something that we like, something that we can nod our heads to. Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God in praise, petition, confession of sin, and thanksgiving. But I wonder if we were to answer the question, what is prayer, by thinking about our own prayers, Would we come up with the same answer? Maybe I could give you a a flavor of some typical struggles, many of them mine as well. I only think I need to pray or need the prayers of others when a crisis that I can't deal with comes up. Some things are just too big for me to pray about. Some things are surely too small for God to be concerned about. I do pray, but I'm not really convinced that it does anything. Any of these relate? James has had to rebuke these Christians for how they use their words. You go back to chapter four, and he's explicit. They've been grumbling, they've been arguing with one another. They've been, uh, in chapter 5, we saw they've been taking oaths to maybe solve their problems. But in this final section of his letter, James tells us to remember the power of prayer. And he starts in verse 13 by effectively saying, whatever is happening, pray. Whatever is happening, pray. He starts where we often start with prayer. Is any among you suffering? Let them pray. James' words are, have a bit more of an urging to them. It's more than just let them pray. It's more they should pray. They should pray. There's, there's more of a command about it than that. They should pour out their heart to God when your health deteriorates, when you're miserable with loneliness, when your family feels like it's falling apart, when you're having to sit exams that you were told you wouldn't have to sit, when friends turn their back on you. James says, is anyone suffering? You should pray. Here is your permission explicitly to bring those sufferings, those difficulties, those trials to God. And boy, do we have a precedent that runs right through the Scriptures to do that. This is the sort of thing the prophets did. This is the sort of thing you find the Psalmists did repeatedly. David in Psalm 38 He speaks to God. He says, my back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. Psalm 10, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Arise, lords! lift up your hand, O God, do not forget the helpless. Is anyone suffering? They should pray. But that's not all, James says. Is anyone cheerful? Let them sing praise. And this isn't just singing, let them sing. Boy, we'd be in trouble at the moment, wouldn't we? Let them sing praise. Praise to whom? Not to ourselves, don't just sing into thin air, sing in praise to God. As we said together earlier, pouring out our hearts to God in praise, and so again, The Psalms, Psalm 126, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. In the New Testament, Mary, she receives the news that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. James wants us to see that there really is no circumstance where we are not welcome and where we are not encouraged to come to God and to speak to Him about it. But more than that, he wants us to see that there is not a circumstance that could arise in your life where we don't need to come before God in prayer. Anyone suffering? Anyone cheerful? Pray. You should pray. As Paul puts it in Philippians 4, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In everything. James says, whatever's happening, pray. But there's another circumstance that's really very important for James to mention, and that's what he tackles in verse 14. This is where we have a lot of questions about what James is talking about. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Here we have the issue of sickness, And here we enter into what is quite possibly the hardest part of James' letter to just get to grips with. So, I want to show you what I think is going on here. Many of you will be able to relate to this, I'm sure. Uh, Illness is one of those things that is is very hard for the non-ill to empathize with. It's hard, isn't it, to describe the far-reaching effects that illness can have on a person. When we're, when we're well, um, we might, I might even be tempted to think, well, if I fell ill and I had to go into hospital for a week, I would catch up on some reading and maybe get on with uh, the spiritual disciplines. Um, I'd maybe be very keen to be an evangelist in the wards. It'd be nice to have a week out. But when we're ill, it's a different story altogether. The tiredness, the lethargy, the inability to concentrate, to think clearly, it wears you down. And it is not uncommon for Christians to find that when they are ill, They actually can't pray. They struggle to pray. They know their need. They know how much they need God's help, but they just cannot pray. And I think James is saying here from verse 14 when you can't pray, seek prayer. When you can't pray, seek prayer. There's a suggestion here, it's not explicit, but there's a suggestion that James has a significant illness in mind. There's a few things that kind of suggest that in the passage. Notice that the elders here have to be called to go to the one who's sick. They are seemingly unable to go to the elders. They have to call for them to come. The elders come, and specifically, James says, they pray over the sick person, suggesting that, well, the sick person's lying down, and the elders are not. They pray over Him. And that's hinted at in verse 15 when they speak about Him being raised up. And notice that it's the prayer of faith that is prayed by the elders that will bring healing. He doesn't speak about the faith of the one who's being prayed for. The prayer of faith is prayed on their behalf. It seems there's a real weakness in the one who is sick here, And the mention of the oil here also in verse 14 is not straightforward either. On the one hand, there is a recurring theme in the Old Testament of oil being used to signify how God sets someone apart, the presence of God is with them, Uh, kings were anointed with oil, priests were anointed with oil. And it may be that that's what James is getting at here, oil being this symbolic reminder particularly to the one who is sick, that God is at work in them by His Spirit. But on the other hand, rubbing on oil was a standard way of treating illness in the first century. That word anoint can simply mean to rub. This is is widely attested to outside of Scripture, but within Scripture as well. You may recall the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus speaks of the Samaritan who took pity on the traveler who had been attacked by bandits on the road, And the care that was shown was to bandage his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And so James might be pointing to the positive effects, that, the positive medical effects of rubbing on oil, which was a very, very common treatment for illness. But whichever way you want to take that, notice what James says is effective. Like whether you view the oil as this way or that way, he doesn't say it's the oil that's effective to heal. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So, that does not allow us to view this as some sacred oil that has healing properties. Neither does it allow us to view this as that um, God's providential healing is somehow separate from the use of medicine. When we pray for someone to get better, they go to the hospital, they get treatment, they get medication, and they become well, and we praise God for answering prayer. The promise of verse 15 that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. I suppose it should puzzle us a little bit, because it seems to suggest that if someone isn't healed, then it must be because the prayer was not prayed with enough faith. But I think it's very important to remember that this way of speaking is not unusual in the Bible. Jesus Himself made promises to His disciples. Listen to this uh, from John 14 he says whatever you ask in my name this I will do that the father may be glorified in the son if you ask me for anything in my name I will do it now is Jesus presenting his followers with a blank check well the answer to the question is yes and no the key is in the condition that Jesus puts on the promise whatever you ask in my name. So, you can't very well come to Jesus and ask for something in Jesus' name that is not for Him, that's not honoring to Him, to ask for something that's not within His will. And in the same way in our passage in James 5, that exact same condition is there. You see that in verse 14, they are to anoint Him with oil, they are to pray over Him, anointing Him with oil, in the name of the Lord. That same condition is there. And with that must always come an acknowledgement that God knows better than us. So, yes, through the prayers of God's people, God brings about healing, often using ordinary means, even using miraculous means, but He does so always according to His will. The teaching that says that it is always God's will to heal just doesn't stack up. And we can say that because not until Jesus returns and we're in the new heaven and the new earth will we ever be fully, truly healed. I mean, I say that confidently because every one of you here is going to die one day. Everyone. Even the strongest proponents of the faith healing movement died of something. We have encountered the prayer of faith already in James. So when we worry about this, what does he mean then about this prayer of faith that will save the one who's sick? Well, we've already encountered this prayer of faith in chapter 1 where James encourages these persecuted Christians that in the midst of their trials, they need to seek God's wisdom. And how do they find that? They ask God in faith with no doubting, not like a double-minded person, James says, who seeks things from God for his own benefit rather than to do God's will. And so, I must admit, I think there's a deliberate double meaning in the words that James uses in verse 15 of our passage. The person prayed for will be saved, will be raised up. Well, that is legitimate language to speak about how they would be healed, but it is also the language of salvation, isn't it? And so it can be said for the Christian, even if they are desperately sick and that God doesn't heal them, well, like the Apostle Paul could say, the Christian can always say, even though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And I fear we often miss this in our prayers for the sick. I mean, James is telling us here to pray for healing, And I don't want to undermine that in any way. I'm going to say more about that in a moment. But as I was thinking of this, I was reminded of a friend of mine whose whose mum was seriously ill, and the church were pretty good at regularly praying for her over a period of many months, maybe even a year and more. And my friend was very grateful for that prayer support, but he pointed out that he couldn't remember at any time hearing anyone pray for his mum's spiritual health. They were so caught up in praying for physical healing that they didn't pray that this woman's faith in Jesus would flourish in the midst of her trial, in her illness. And so often, brothers and sisters, that that flourishing of faith and trust in Christ in the midst of sickness is so much more a testimony to the power of the gospel than us always trying to find the easy exit. But how easy for me to say, standing here when I'm well. There is a pattern here, and it is worth making it clear. James says, if you're sick, call the elders. They will pray over you, and the prayer of faith will heal if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. And what should be certainly the case is that it will raise you spiritually, it will strengthen you in Christ, even if it does not lead to full physical healing. James doesn't say that the elders or a charismatic pastor will call you to the front of the church. He does not say anywhere that he will lay hands on you, not a mention of that. He says, if any among you are sick, let them know. Call for them. Let them pray over you. And it can be hard as as elders when we don't know that someone is ill. And especially when someone says, why haven't you done anything about it? So important that we communicate these things. And I want to say as clear as I can that you, as part of this church family, must never feel that you're bothering your pastor or bothering your elders unnecessarily by letting them know about the trials that you're in, about sickness that you might be facing. You must never feel that you're bothering your pastor or your elders because, frankly, that is what we're here for. And I want you to take that as an open door. And praise be, restrictions will hopefully soon be lifted even further in Scotland where we can be in folks' homes a little bit more freely. And it's just as well that James says, doesn't say anything about laying hands on people because we're not allowed to do it. But consider your elders and your pastor here to serve you in this way. Because James says, when you can't pray, seek prayer. In verse 15, James introduces an if. And so here's another lesson about prayer we've got to learn. That if introduces the last bit of verse 15. It says, if that person has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The questions that arise in our mind are never ending in this section. James introduces the possibility here that the sickness that the Christian is suffering may well be the result of their sin he is not saying that all sickness he's not even saying that most sickness is a punishment for some sin that we have committed but he is saying this does happen when we celebrate communion together we often read 1 corinthians chapter 11 where paul tells the church that they need to be careful about how they treat one another Because to deliberately exclude or to deliberately separate yourself off from other Christians when celebrating communion is a sinful thing. And Paul says, for this reason, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The sickness in the church in Corinth was directly linked to their divisive behavior. And the church that James writes to. They've been fighting, they've been quarreling, been grumbling against one another. Was something similar happening here? Now, here we must always tread very, very carefully because I must admit, I doubt if we are ever likely to have that kind of insight into another person's heart to be able to say with any confidence, well, this illness that you're going through is because of some sin that you've committed. I think that is an unhealthy approach. But it certainly can be the case that ill health brings some ongoing sin to the surface, really brings persistent sin to the conscience of someone when they're ill. Or perhaps an unresolved conflict with another Christian, perhaps even the guilt of sin is what is affecting your health. James says, "If you've sinned, pray." So he said, "Whatever's going on, pray. When you can't, sit, when you can't pray, seek prayer. If you've sinned, pray." If you've sinned against someone, verse 16, confess that to them. Confess your struggles to one another so that you might pray for one another. That's his command there in verse 16. Pray for one another. As you understand the struggles that each other have, pray for one another. You see here, James does not want us to sell prayer short. Whatever's going on pray. And even when you can't pray, seek prayer. If you've sinned, pray. You'll find forgiveness. You'll find healing. But James, we might say, if you could see my prayers, prayer seems so timid, so lame, so gentle, so non-proactive, and as for me, I'm no prayer warrior. I'm no super spiritual soul. Isn't this all a bit unrealistic? Isn't this idealistic stuff that I could never live up to? Well, James says to us in verse 16 to 18, prayer moves heaven and earth. Prayer moves heaven and earth. He wants us, if we've got any doubts about the place of prayer, he wants us to understand just what prayer does. And so he gives us this bold statement at the end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Really, that's his way of saying prayer is powerful. Prayer changes things, and he backs it up with an example from Scripture. An example from the life of Elijah. But what a reminder this is. Look how he starts this, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. (laughs) I mean, in effect, James says Elijah was just another bloke. You know, he wasn't an angel that came down from heaven. Elijah was a guy who had weaknesses. You remember the story you know there are times where he's he's great he has these great triumphant moments over the prophets of Baal and then in the next moment he's asking God to take his life away from him elijah was a guy like us he had weaknesses he was limited he was a fallible human being just like you or me but here's what he did he prayed he prayed. It says in verse uh, 17, he prayed fervently that it might not rain. Um, More literally, it just says he prayed praying that it might not rain. And so it might actually be just a very straightforward thing James is saying. He prayed, and he prayed that it wouldn't rain. And for three and a half years, this ordinary guy's prayers held back the rain. And then when He prayed for rain to come and break the drought, it came. James tells us prayer moves heaven and earth. Did God need Elijah's prayers? Of course not. God doesn't need anything but this is what God has ordained. This is how God has chosen to bring about His purposes. Be under no illusion here. Prayer is not just some piece of theater that we do out the front, and the real work is going on unseen. God hears prayer. God responds to prayer. God uses prayer to do His will. And so, while Christians need to have a strong view of God's sovereignty, that God is over all things, that His will always comes to pass, that is never an excuse for fatalism in the Christian life. We're nowhere told to just resign ourselves to whatever happens. In fact, it is precisely because God is sovereign and that there is nothing outside of His control that we can be confident to pray because only God can change the things that we're praying about. Only God can reach into every part of our lives, every part of this world. And He's given us this gift of prayer through which He will act. And that's why prayer moves heaven and earth. It is as we bow low before God, pour our hearts out to Him in praise, petition, confession of sin, Thanksgiving, we know that He always hears us, that God has said, it is that that I will use to bring about my will in this world. What a privilege for God to make us partners with Him, so to speak, in Him fulfilling His great purposes in this world. And so what does that mean in the life of a church Let's take it at the personal level first, the place of personal prayer. No one knows your weaknesses quite like you. And if we have this understanding of what God does through prayer, and we realize how hard our hearts are at times. How drawn to sin our hearts are. How hard-hearted our loved ones can be. Then we'll pray. Because we'll understand that we don't have it within us to change these things. But through our prayers, God will work His Spirit to change us. James calls on us to pray for each other. This is what it will look like in the life of a church if we have grasped the power of prayer. We will not be so embarrassed to ask if we can pray for each other, or if someone mentions a particular struggle, to even stop there and then and say, hey, why don't we pray about it? Because we understand that while nice words, understanding words may bring comfort, nothing changes things like prayer does, because this is what God has chosen to use to bring about His purposes. And then for a church family together, to look for direction in how we proceed as, as, as the gospel community in this part of the world. If we're looking to appoint a new member of staff for wisdom and how we move forward with that. To pray for our nation in all of its current turmoil. Well the church community will come together and pray because we understand the power of prayer that this is what God has chosen to use to change us into His community of of Christ-honoring people and to change the world around us. And the evidence that we haven't grasped the power of prayer is that in all of these areas, we're silent. James is calling God's people here to depend upon God. God and to do so in prayer. And there are lots of opportunities for us to do that corporately. And I want to encourage you. Maybe you could spare one lunchtime this week to come and pray between quarter past twelve and quarter to one. Maybe you could spare fifteen minutes next Sunday morning to join the prayer meeting before our Sunday service, to pray that what we're doing here would actually be used by God to change us. We meet for prayer once a month in this place, first Wednesday of the month. Let's come together and, and, and bring all of our baggage, bring all of the troubles, all of the things we can't see a clear future for, and let's bring them to God. Because there is power in prayer. Time is marching on. James closes out his letter in a really unusual way. Verses 19 and 20 are really the the finale of the letter. He doesn't end with a a benediction. Grace and peace to you, There's, there's, there's none of that. It actually seems quite abrupt, doesn't it? He says, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover multitude of sins. But we need to consider these verses not just in how they relate to the section on prayer, but actually how they relate to the letter as a whole. And when we do that, this is actually a pretty good way to end the letter. James says that the Christian life is dealing with the highest possible stakes. James' lessons to us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. All of the times in this letter where he's exposed false understandings of what it means to follow Jesus, he says these are matters of life and death. Now, he doesn't write this letter to get Christians to doubt uh, whether they really are Christians. But he says, for example, if someone claims to have faith in Jesus, but there's no evidence of that faith, then they have wandered from the truth. They need to be brought back because someone in that situation is believing a false gospel, one that says you can live however you please just so long as you believe good things about Jesus. James is saying that if you use your words to tear people down all the time, to gossip about them behind their back, and then think that with the same mouth you can sing worship to God on a Sunday in your garden after church, then you have wandered from the truth. You're believing a false gospel, and you need to be brought back. And there are lots of semi-religious people who think that their tip of the hat to God just once in a while is all they need to do to secure them a spot in heaven. The church is a group of sinners who've turned back and who keep needing to turn back from their wandering towards God. The truth that we must never deviate from is this, that that God is pure and holy, that I am sinful and rebellious against Him, and I'm cut off from Him, deserving only His judgment. But Jesus Christ is God. Come as a human being to live the life I couldn't live, to die on the cross bearing the judgment that I deserve. And I can be sure of that because He rose again from the dead, and He calls everyone to turn away from sin and believe in Him, to believe that He really is your Savior, and to follow Him, to live for Him in every part of life. Anything else just isn't the gospel truth, and to embrace anything else is the road to death. But to embrace Jesus by faith is the way of forgiveness and life. And here, as he brings this letter to a close, is this mark of the Christian life. We remember the power of prayer, and we trust in God to work through the prayers of His people, to heal, to restore, to save, to revive, to glorify His name in us. Amen. And now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church,